Welcome to Well Good Movies, the podcast for film fans by film fans. Every episode, we look at films old and new to choose what should be preserved for all time in our movie vault. With lively topics, big questions, and crazy challenges to entertain us and our guests, we always look to have fun by giving you the topics worth discussing and the movies worth watching, even if there are some duds along the way. But don't just take my word for it. Here's a preview of what to expect in today's episode. It's just like they never really actually show you him kind of as the moral compass to Charlie. They kind of show him as this guy who's just like, yeah, why not? You know, he's the guy in the fizzy lifting drinks room who's just like, let's drink it. And I'm like, what? It's so like, you're supposed to be the adult. We need this as the prequel. Young, shady grandpa Joe. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. Are you not entertained? I am your father. Wait! Well, good movies! Hello, and welcome to Well, Good Movies. Or should I say, greetings to you, the lucky finder of this golden ticket. From Mr. Willy Wonka, I shake you warmly by the hand. Tremendous things are in store for you. Many wonderful surprises await you in your wildest dreams. You could not imagine that such things could happen to you. Just wait and see the day I have chosen for the visit is the first day in the month of February. You must come to the factory gates at 10 o'clock sharp. Don't be late, Willy Wonka. Or in this case, we are discussing Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory on its anniversary. Uh, it's celebrating 50 years since it came out back in 1971. So I am your guide today, or also host, David Osger, and I am joined by my co-host. He is an enigma. He's a very odd fellow as there's no earthly way of knowing which direction he is going. <laughs> it's Craig McDonald. Hello, Craig. What are you talking about? <laughs> I just wanted some reason to get, get that in there. I was tempted to do the entire thing, and I kind of was, like, practicing beforehand, but I was like, I'm going to save this. I kind of, like, maybe want to see how our guests would maybe <laughs> do it. But I did quite enjoy just spouting the madness but i was like no we'll, we'll save the madness until later that, that all like will... all i can say is you you're gonna like what i've got planned and have in no way as usual have in no way told you about <laughs> oh joys well that's what i was thinking i was like well no and craig there's uh there's some madness gonna gonna follow so this seems uh apt but uh yes joining us today uh with their golden tickets don't worry they're not as uh you know, hideous people as in in the book. I didn't want to. For a split second, to, I thought then. you were going to say they're not as hideous as Craig. Don't worry. <laughs> no, 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 no. I was like, of all characters, you don't want to be comparing like guests and uh, fellow co-hosts to uh, doll characters because uh, yeah, there's going to be a lot of offense made there. But you know, Craig, you know, like he made that. You know, I, I didn't say that. So yeah, joining us is uh, our good friend Kyle Sean Thomas, who is a musician and actor. It's been quite a while since uh, we've seen him. He, of course, joined us many uh, years ago, it feels like now, when we were talking about Star Wars and Joker. Kyle, how are you? Hey, how's it going? I'm pretty elusive. I uh, tried to take a golden egg from a goose and was thrown down a trash compactor. You just wanted it there I, and then. I, I wanted it now. <laughs> and uh, 
yeah, talking of madness, last time you were on, uh, obviously you've got the joy of me and Craig reenacting uh, Anakin and Obi-Wan. Since then now, you know, I've become uh, a hobo on a desert planet and Craig has become a Dark Lord of the Sith uh, operating a Death Star. <laughs> he, you failed to mention that he also owns like a Stormtrooper candy factory. <laughs> we're, we're keeping everything in theme. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Just to check, is that is that a candy factory for stormtroopers or a candy factory making candy out of stormtroopers? Uh, well, keeping with how Mr. Wonka would take that factory uh, diversion. Cool. <laughs> I just imagine in like Darth Vader just dancing around with a cane singing the candy man. Now. <laughs> oh, that's something I want to see. So, uh, Kyle, what have you been up to? Just uh, give us a little update on uh, your creative endeavours and uh, what films you've been uh, obsessing over lately. I'm sure there's some uh, mad, mad stuff in there. So I've recently been cast in a original theatre production called Acres of Longing, which uh, we're hoping to get on stage by November. Fingers crossed. That's really interesting. Uh, Music-wise, I'm doing vocals for the band Crypt Rot. I'm sure I might have mentioned it either here or somewhere else. It's out there. If you like death metal, that is. Uh, so, and yes, of course, and you said you once played Willy Wonka, so very apt that you're on uh, this episode today as well. Yeah, that was a fun time. It's going back a little while ago, but uh, I'm still bitter to the point where they stole pure imagination from me and turned it into a chorus number and not a solo performance. I will hold that to my grave and if anyone by any chance who knows me was there or was in that cast, I'm still bitter and I'm still coming for you. I know where you live. <laughs> Just uh, idle threats on the podcast. Okay, cool. <laughs> Moving swiftly on. Uh, so uh, we are also joined by uh, a newcomer to the show. They are a film fan and self-proclaimed film society member who only goes for the quizzes. <laughs> it is Liv Mackinder. Hello, Liv. Hello, yeah. Well, you know what? I was thinking before, you said you didn't want to compare us to like any Roald Dahl characters or anything like that. But while you've been chatting away, I've been thinking in the back of my mind, you probably should, because I'm really starting to identify with the bad giants in the BFG who just sleep and eat. I was thinking whether you were going to... Because they are obviously good characters, you know, in terms of like Matilda and those those kind of characters, but... But no, yeah, giants, if you want. There's, a lot of people do, there's like those uh, defense of like characters like Violet out there as well, isn't there? Which people are just like, yeah, this kid should have won the factory and all that kind of stuff. So you could go you could go down that route as well if you wanted to. Like she's uh, chasing her dreams. <laughs> so uh, Liv, tell us a bit about yourself. What are some of your favorite films? Uh, what What is your jam when it comes to movies? Okay, yeah. Well, to be honest, I think if, you could, like, if anyone's going to be described as liking a bit of anything, it's me. And you can tell that by the fact that my favourite films are Whiplash, Rear Window, and Pitch Perfect. Which don't really seem along the same theme. But, yeah, no, lately I've, because of uh, lockdown ending, I've gone through a bit of a film phase over the summer again. I've got a movie subscription and an Odeon Limitless subscription, so I've been watching, like, films every single day. Fortnite ago, I watched Palm Springs six times in two weeks. So um, yeah, I'm going down a bit of a film spiral at the moment. It's uh, getting quite chaotic. Yeah. Also, Liv, remind me, what was that film you, you really wanted to watch uh, with me in, in the winter? 
Yes, The Deluge! The greatest film of all time. I don't know that. I've never seen it, but apparently it's got the most accurate swordplay of any historic film ever. It's six hours long and about a war in Poland. Oh, wow. That sounds like the kind of thing like Christopher Lee would be into or something. He's, you know, he was always into like, you know, sword fighting and that kind of stuff. Uh, sounds like something he would respect. Yeah, we thought it was a perfect time to talk about this famous film, uh, which has become infamous amongst film fans, you know, fans of Gene Wilder, music fans as well. You know, many of the songs from this film have become infamous, you know, being used in like advertising campaigns, other movies as well. And this film, like others, which we've mentioned in the past, has become a goldmine for just parody memes, you know, this the, the you know the meme game with this film is is very strong especially as uh you know even with gene wilder there as as willy wonka with the you know oh really so yeah i was so, gonna say wasn't that like an og meme like yeah the, exactly the oh, really, you know, willy wonka we're going back to the we're going back to the classics you know the, the history of memes <laughs> so yeah this film is celebrating its 50th anniversary uh in celebration it's got a 4k release uh, coming out and of course this film you know mainly got a lot of its infamy for the nostalgia that people have for it from watching it on television it wasn't actually a big success when it first got released uh, which was back in 1971 in the u.s it was the 30th of june that it first came out uh, the director is mel stewart roald Dahl is credited with writing the screenplay but it was sort of changed uh, by someone else much to his dismay uh, and it stars gene wilder Jack Albertson and Peter Ostrom in our sort of lead roles. Uh, Peter playing Charlie, uh, and then you got a whole slew of other characters and actors, of course, all playing the the many children who go into the the factory and their parents. We thought this was a great chance to talk about the adaptations of Roald Dahl and specifically this film because, as we mentioned, it's become infamous for so many elements. Uh, so first off, I just wanted to talk to you guys about your history just with Roald Dahl in general, because I think that that's quite important when you're talking about his adaptations, is that unlike maybe a lot of other authors, people might be familiar with one certain book or one certain story, uh, or their adaptations haven't been that well received and they've kind of gone under the radar, but Roald Dahl has had quite a sort of you know, mix. A lot of people love some of the adaptations. They might not be adaptations that he personally liked himself, uh, but as an author, he's become this big name just in himself and his collection of works. You know, there's so many stories that he has that are all famous. Uh, so, Kyle, you know, what what's your sort of history with, with Dahl? Well, I, I remember, like, like th- this is going to shoot me in the foot straight off if I get it wrong. But I'm, I'm about 85% sure the twits is Roald Dahl. Yes, I rem- yeah. I, yeah, I thought so. Yeah, that was one I remember reading really early on 
in my lifespan, uh, as well as like growing up on Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. I think a lot of people can agree with like like that's one of the first instances of literature that they end up being exposed to. And I think for a lot of people, the problem lies in that if you grow up reading it and you have such a like clear vision in your head of how these things are to you, that it's, it's almost impossible to really hammer home a really good adaptation. I think it's the problem like some people have with Star Wars. I know that's going off topic, but like it, it always means something different to everyone else. Yeah, no, uh, you know, it, it always links back to Star Wars. I find so many times when you're talking about film because it's such a big fan base. It's such a big franchise. And like you said, there's so many elements to it. It kind of is like testing ground for like how people react to film and, and that kind of stuff. And yeah, funnily enough, I think recently one of the writers who's working on The Acolyte, which is one of the Disney Plus series, you know, there they were talking about like they're incorporating politics into the story possibly. And people were like, oh, why are you doing that? That's not part of Star Wars. And she was like, well, if you know George Lucas and you understand the story, that's always been a part of it. So that very much links into understanding your authors, understanding your creators. And I think that's what's important when you're talking about like Roald Dahl, for instance. And I'm glad you brought up the twits because to me, that's like, synonymous with Dahl like what he is as as an author and I think it it makes sense to the kind of like films and stories I kind of liked when I was like younger and then become a teenager because it's such a wacky weird story and I think it it, it wouldn't be the same if you didn't have like the illustrations by Quentin Blake etc yeah that's what I was gonna say like with the twits like if you were to like almost try and do that live action i feel like there'd be a large part of people going there's a lot of indication towards like like domestic abuse and stuff and it's like well it's supposed to be more whimsical than that but like the implication is easily easily drawn i suppose yeah weirdly i i uh there's a theater company in Cardiff called the Sherman Theater. And when I was younger in school, they always used to do Dahl adaptations, you know, when like the school takes you on like a theater visit, like once a year around Christmas. And there was like a few years in which they continuously did Dahl adaptations. One of them was the Twits. So it was weird seeing that brought to life on, oh, on man, a stage. Oh man, I wish I'd caught that. Yeah. Uh, and I think they did James and the Giant Peach another year as well. So yeah. Uh, but then, like you said, when you look at a lot of the films that they've made, it's funny how the creator's style has to be taken into account there. So something like Fantastic Mr. Fox, it's not so much a Dahl film or a story as much as a Wes Anderson kind of film, which is kind of similar with like the Tim Burton, Charlie and Chocolate Factory. Like, you know, that's kind of very much a Tim Burton kind of film. And I think it's just because Dahl has such a style and sort of aesthetic in himself that it's hard to really adapt that yourself without going okay well i'm gonna do this with my style as well yeah that's the thing like i think i think like a large portion is like if you've got someone that's grown up uh on dal and wants to adapt like i'm sure like they've got their own interpretation as soon as you give anything to a creative there's always going to be their take on it and their influence on it so like it's never going to meet the author's expectations, the filmmaker's expectations, the audience's expectations. Like it's 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 an amalgamation, but I suppose that's why like cinema's as magical as it is because it's such a unique experience to everyone that sees it. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Liv, what about for yourself? What's your experience with Dahl and you know possibly the the adaptations? What's your take on that? 
See, this is actually something that quite surprised me, to be honest. Because as a child back in the school days, everyone always had this factionalization of whether you were a Roald Dahl supporter or a Michael Mapurgo supporter. It's worse than LFC versus Everton. It, it was rife, it was, back in the school days. And I've always thought that I was one of those uh, snobby little children who fell on the Michael Mapurgo side. But I've been looking back at this, and in hindsight, I realised I owned every single Roald Dahl audiobook and every single physical book there was. I watched The Witches on video, the good adaption, not the terrible recent one, like every other weekend. I can remember most of the plot, but I don't know, other than the fact that Warhorse was in France at one point, a single thing about the Morpurgo book, so every I've evidently got my perception of what I liked as a child very wrong at some point. But, yeah, no, I, d I don't know what it is about Roald Dahl books generally. There's part of me doesn't want to like them, but I do anyway. I, um, I used to babysit children a lot, and I always had to read them Roald Dahl books, and it, it would just be a slog of getting through it. But for some reason, it wasn't a bad experience, even though I always went into it thinking it would be. It's like... As an adult, you don't want to like the silliness, but you do. It's, yeah, it's mental. Yeah, something like with, um, like, the only sort of recent examples I can think, and this is probably just because of the versions they get of it every Christmas on the BBC, etc. But then they add, like, the gruff load on there, and then they always have, like, some other, you know, version of those similar stories, like, in later years. And they, to me, they always kind of just look like the same kind of, like, wheelhouse of ideas, like, of like oh, an animal, and it's dressed up as this character, etc., etc. Um, whereas, like, Dahl is very much, like, it's something different every single time. Like, I remember being a kid in the school library, and it was kind of like, oh, yeah, you could pick up uh, the Chronicles of Narnia, but then you were just like, oh, do I want to read all, you know, eight of those books? And it'd be the same kind of stuff each time. Whereas Roald Dahl is kind of like, oh, you know, one's about a giant, one's about like a boy who's just like tinkering with potions. And then you've got like a book which is randomly about a man who stacks tortoises. And so it is, there's so many, you know, different weird kooky stories. So they're very fun and they very, they do lend themselves to, you know, the, the sort of theatricality and as you said, kind of storytelling, I suppose, in a way. I mean, there's definitely something for everyone. I think that's probably Dahl's credit. Like, I... Being in the middle of the countryside, a lot of the kids worked on farms, uh, like went round beating pheasants, that kind of thing. All of them loved Danny the Champion of the World. Like there, there's something for everyone in, in each of the books. Yeah. Yeah, because he even does sort of like a lot of like personal stuff as well. I think it's like, it's just called Boy, isn't it? Which is also like, you know, based on his childhood, etc. Yeah, and Craig, you have a history of uh, playing Dahl characters as well. Actually, I just remembered that you played the BFG once when we were in performing arts. <laughs> Yeah, um, I think some magical moments from that entire experience. Uh, one is basically we our absolute failed attempt of trying to have size perspective when passing the potion uh, down to Sophie. Some f***ing prick hid. We basically were going to have, I was holding a small one, would throw it down into black, and then Sophie would pick up a large version of the same bottle, and some prick hid the big version of that bottle. Just had to throw it down and everyone just be like, believe it's meant to be big. Although I think what we did, in comparison to the actual um, uh, BFG show that we went to see in preparation for that, which this is my favourite anecdote from a theatre ever, 
basically the seat one of the scenes when the the giants are running through london like eating children uh there's they on this stage when the giants are running around it's just a doll's house this giant rips open the house uh the roof of the doll's house pulls out a doll and it looks exactly like a dora the explorer doll just rips her head off and screams so he just rips it off and he's like yeah and bear in mind it's a bunch we're a bunch of like uh, like 17 year olds at this point, 17, 18 year olds, just surrounded by these kids who are terrified because they've just watched Dora the Explorer be brutally murdered. Not even eaten, just killed for the sake of being killed. And we're just like, <laughs> rip Dora, literally rip Dora in half. I suppose that does kind of link in with the darkness of Dahl, though, isn't it? And, you know, why Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, you know, a lot of people are drawn to it as a story. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's like a lot of morality, like dark morality plays in there. Like a lot of people just think that the his stories are just like nonsense. But if you but it only tends to be this sort of like whimsical nonsense. If you're good, if you're bad, like really, really graphic stuff happens. Things like you blow up as like as a blueberry. Things like you almost suffocate in chocolate. Things like just you get digitized down to like really really small sizes and you can't come just really really horrific just horrific things and then just also just other stories where you just grant a really really nice girl like psychic powers that she used that she uses to like get revenge on evil headmasters yeah see now i'm making comparisons to the bible in my head what, so Matilda is Jesus? No, just generally, all the weird powers for the good guys and the insanely bad punishments for the bad guys to give children a good moral framework. I mean, he crucifies his own son, who is meant to be, like, the purveyor of all good. I'm not sure how much that sort of falls into that sort of um, comparison. Eh, Dahl had a different moral framework. Interestingly, with this film... I think this kind of is interesting because, again, we're talking about, you know, a book series and an author who's doing it for his own, you know, creativity and wants to make sort of like fun, scary, dark stories for kids, etc. But a lot of the reason that they made this film was they just wanted a film about chocolate that could kind of help to sell a new Quaker Oats bar. (laughs) So I think it was like one of the children of the, I think it was the child of the director was reading the book and was like oh you you know you should make a film of this with uh you know uncle dave which was like the producer and uh the main reason he got on board was because he was like well we were working with quaker oats at the time and they wanted to release a new chocolate bar and we were like hey you know why don't you finance this film which could help like launch this new chocolate bar and i was just like it very much when i saw that i kind of very much spoke to that kind of i suppose like time in which we don't get as much now maybe more so for theme parks in which films are made kind of to like sell the theme park experiences but back in the days of when like films were made for the toys or toys were made for the films and you know similar with television series and that kind of stuff in which they were made for a very specific purpose Uh, so i thought that that was interesting as the first one of those I was going to say uh, that that is like the most like film business sounding things I've ever heard of. We've got exactly. sponsors like let's do it like that is amazing. And yet it's just one of the beautiful examples of where it works like like the uh, like the original animated Transformers movie entire entire like animated show and film made to just sell 
robot toys and yet actual quality behind it yeah i love it and i think with this one as well it's 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 the attraction which when we were talking earlier again about you know they're making like a prequel and it's it's kind of like even though it's kind of a strange idea there's still the idea of like oh well who's going to be wonka it's that kind of like the similar with batman etc who's going to be the joker who's going to be the riddler it's something about these kind of like iconic literary characters that people go like oh i need to know who's going to play this person so you can kind of add them to the hall of fame of you know characters who played this sort of like big famous character hasn't it been confirmed that it's timothy Chalamet? yeah yeah exactly but i think what i was going to say here is obviously like you know gene wilder as wonka has almost become as famous just in itself apart from the film you know is like you know his portrayal most people think of when they think of wonka i think so yeah, I think the fact that, you know, they're celebrating 50 years, as I mentioned before, you've got songs like Pure Imagination, The Candyman, Cheer Up Charlie, the Oompa Loompa songs. There's so much imagery within this. There's so many memes, so many parodies have been made. So we kind of had to just talk about it for how, you know, big a legacy it has. So um, in terms of like, you know, our memories of the film, favorite moments, that kind of stuff, I'll go to you first, Kyle, as, you know, when I mentioned this idea, you sort of, you know, jumped straight away to sort of talk about this and you know what what's the reason for that what's your kind of attachment to the film oh well like growing up on it like it's weird because like obviously like you say like there's so much like parody stuff and like spin-offs and stuff like that that reference it that like like putting a direct finger on the pulse of when i fell in love with it I think I'd have to say it was like around the same time like I remember watching Alice in Wonderland the animated Disney one and just for the sheer like left turn of a film that it is like I vividly remember that that boat scene and to this day it's like one of my favorite things like I've always loved like just it it's like it's a kids film it, there's wonderful kooky stuff going on but they just the the in older stuff there seemed to be like at least one moment that is completely horror that is left field and does leave an impact on people and I think some of the stuff these days are missing it because if you compare that original boat scene to how they done it in the Tim Burton version it's night and day like I know obviously you can't like copy and paste it because everyone's got their own interpretations and stuff but. I don't know, there's just something about, like, older films that had, like, these moral lessons, but, like, one standout moment that would scare you out of, like, just your entire being. Just, like, what was that moment? And that tunnel boat moment is it. Even, like, going so far as to be, like, the opening track of, like, a... I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna name drop the person because he's been cancelled, but the fact that it's the opening track to this person's first album is insane to me and it works so well but i refuse to give him any sort of notoriety to this point so fair fair uh, <laughs> yeah but 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 like you said it's you know again it's it's the music and it's the you know this like again you'll be watching like i don't know adverts for like sky television and you know Candyman comes up or pure imagination comes up for something else and it's yeah it's just something about it that obviously people will attach themselves to so it's that kind of sentimentality that has with it uh Liv do you have any sort of like certain memories of this film or sort of reasons that you think it works so well yeah I I feel like I've had a completely different experience of this film to everyone else on the planet for the following reason 
Right, I know all the songs, completely off by heart, but I don't realise I know them. I remember all the memorable things, like the boat and the backflip and uh, the blueberry girl, and all those sort of things, I remember them. But for some reason, even since I was like five, six years old, the things in that film that I've enjoyed the most are the quintessentially 70s mundane moments. So, like, the weird sense of humour of the school teacher, or the computer saying, no, bugger off, and um, <laughs> just, I don't know, the, the like, drabness of the uh, fruity wallpaper. Like, it's all of those just very mundane parts that I've enjoyed the most, because even they have this silliness underneath them, and because of that, they stand out to me even more than the, the big moments. So yeah, it's a it's a weird weird take I've always had on the film because of that. Does that include uh, Grandpa Joe being a massive benefit fraud? <laughs> 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 to be honest, watching him learn to walk every time, I'm just thinking that just looks like me every morning. <laughs> Again, that's what I find interesting with that with his portrayal in in this version is that he like at the end. You know, he says about how they've broken the rules. Like, he does actually say, he's like, come on, Charlie, we'll go find that slughorn guy. I was like, wow, <laughs> Grandpa Joe literally was willing to, like, take the evil route or whatever, you know, they want to call it. So I just found that hilarious. <laughs> it's just like they never really actually show you him kind of as the moral compass to Charlie. They kind of show him as this guy who's just like, yeah, why not? You know, he's the guy in the fizzy lifting drinks room who's just like, let's drink it. And I'm like, what? So you're supposed to be the adult. We need this as the prequel. Young, shady Grandpa Joe. <laughs> <laughs> I also think, like, people forget about the moment, like, as much as, like, Gene Wilder's Willy Wonka is this fantastical, like, pantomime-esque figure there is that moment when he finally like sh like doesn't show his true colors but he does lay down the law of no you also broke the rules like it was said from the beginning and i think like a lot of films like especially like even if you look at the johnny depp one doesn't have the same impact of him being that that moment of just like being like no you know what you you did you 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 fucked up and you're going to suffer the consequences. Granted, he like then doubles back on himself because of Charlie's willingness not to sell him out. But I, th I think that like is a big moment of character development for him. Oh, believe me, people have noticed and remember that scene quite well. One of my favorite things on the internet is somebody basically remixed that entire scene into like a savage Wonka rap. Oh my god, I need to see this. <laughs> yeah, David and I have been watching it for for years. It's basic it basically just goes up to the point it's just like it's it's just like what rules? We didn't see any rules and it's basically just wrong, so wrong, dude. <laughs> wrong, so wrong. It's just <laughs> it just wraps him so he's like you get washed. You get sterilized. You get nothing. Good day. You lose. What's great is that it basically he starts rap uh, at one point he just goes you stole nothing you've won Charlie goes the chocolate wrong you lose and just just basically he's like nope keeping the chocolate <laughs> oh that's fantastic okay the interesting thing with that though I think is maybe because why it's not as mentioned also like 
looked looked upon as like this sort of famous moment is maybe because it's it'll come down to the adaptation stuff because that isn't in the book and that's kind of like the stuff that they sort of like put in there with the whole slughorn stuff etc but yeah when you know i was watching it back you realize you know the the pure anger on gene wilder's face you know because there's that moment like we said the tunnel scene which is infamous is one of the most scary children's uh, film moments ever but that moment as well is quite terrifying it just how enraged he is you know it, it, so it, like, it's crazy the ticking clock in the background and just the utter silence you're so tense in that room oh god yeah i don't think it helps that everything is in half in that room so you kind of already know like this guy is unhinged you know there's something wrong with this guy credit to like i hope for the child's benefit that he wasn't actually stood there for Gene Wilder to deliver those lines, because I feel like that would have broke him. I mean, he did have to go through the entire t- tunnel scene without being told what was going to happen. Ah, touche, sir. Just the respect I have for the filmmakers going like, yeah, we're just gonna, we're just basically gonna do this as if we are just torturing these actors. Just see, just get most of their genuine reactions to half this stuff. So I can imagine he would have just had the... I'm surprised that he didn't hold up Charlie, like, next to the camera. So Gene is just literally screaming in his face. Yeah, actually, to be fair, now that you point out that, like, I have a feeling that he would have been, like, held there at, like, almost gunpoint to be like, no, you're going to take this on the chin. We need that real reaction. (laughs) But Liv bringing up the, like, weirder moments in the film, uh, you know, Mel Stewart mentions, like, his favorite parts of it being like the little weird sketches that almost happen when people when you've got the frenzy of like trying to find the golden tickets etc and it is strange because you kind of watch it going like where's this come from and i remember being a kid watching it and you know my memories of it was very much kind of like oh you know there's matilda james the giant peach so as i was reading the books i kind of wanted to find all the adaptations and i remember watching it thinking kind of like oh, this is like a weird, like slower, you know, obviously that, you know, the budget constraints are a bit more visible than they are in, you know, the cartoons and those kind of stuff. And yeah, just being sort of like surprised when they just go to like this, you know, therapy session. I was like, what's this have to do with Charlie and the Chocolate Factory? But it is just the weird sketches that they drop into this film. Apparently, uh, the directors, one of the directors' favorite ones got cut from the film and it was quite expensive to film, but it was just a man like climbing to the top of like this like Himalayan mountain, finding like a guru s- sat there and being like, oh, what is the meaning of life? And then he says, uh, I will tell you if you give me a Wonka bar. And he gives him a Wonka bar, he opens it and sees there's no golden ticket and the guru just goes, life is disappointing. And apparently it didn't play well for test audiences. And the guy was just like, why? I think this is really funny. And apparently one of his psychiatrist friends told him because people do think that life is disappointing. So they don't get the joke. It's just like reality. And I was just like, I feel like because of how cynical Mm. we are as how we've grown up, I feel like that would land so well (laughs) now. Probably would like go down well in Britain. Maybe not so much in America. (laughs) Yeah, who knows? So yeah, I, I yeah I I'm with you there, Liv. In terms of, like the weirder moments, the more mundane. I I just think of like the teacher when they tell him like Wonka's uh, you know like giving away uh, Wonka tickets to get into his factory, and the guy is just like class dismissed. And I'm just like I just want to see the head teacher there being like um excuse me, <laughs> like all the parents like really pissed off that their children have just been like excused from school to like go wherever they want. And that moment of them like like on the weirdest machine known to mankind like going through like the washer that's like that holds up so well (laughs) 
Also, just the weird comedy moments. Like, one of the parts which I found, like... Because, obviously, all the adaptations go with the kind of, like, you know, this play up the evilness and, you know, attributes of these kids have been spoiled, you know, greedy, all that kind of stuff. But just the fact that when they go to, like, the Gloop family and, like, they're showing them, like, having a meal, like, I think... That's what's interesting with, like, the Burton one, for example. They show he loves chocolate and he's just eating loads and loads of candy and chocolate. But this version, they're like, no, he's just, like, a connoisseur of, you know, like, German cuisine. You know, he's there with his, like, you know, <laughs> with German sausage and all different sorts of meals. But the, to the point that, like, an interviewer, like, gives the microphone to his father to, like, ask what he thinks. And his dad just eats the microphone. I was like, wow. <laughs> they were like, how can we show what this guy's father's like? He just eats the microphone. <laughs> I think that's some of the thing for me anyway that misses in the Burton version is that for as much wild stuff that there is in the original, like, it almost seems like less is more in comparison because, like, to have, like, to redo Veruca's salt thing of having her be called a bad nut, like, it's, it's... a little bit too much to be fair like even going so far for me anyway as to like go into Wonka's backstory I personally feel like he's almost in the same vein as the Joker where he doesn't necessarily need a backstory like that's half of the fun because like all the sociopathic fan theories actually have some validity and weight because we just don't know uh, you're saying it to the wrong person there. David is a defendant uh, of the Tim Burton version. No, I know. I'm trying to rile him up a little. Oh, I'll join you. <laughs> no, but that's what's interesting again, though, when we get, you know, credit to them as well, is that the adaptation-wise, the bad nut thing, that's in the book. So the squirrel thing is actually faithful to the book. But obviously they couldn't do that back in the 70s. So, uh, I, you know, credit to them to go in, oh, well, what's the equivalent? Oh, bad egg. I was like, yeah, that, that's, you know, okay. pretty, pretty clever. Yeah, to when, fit, so. when you put it side by side like that, okay, I, I, I'll yield this time, sir. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what, are, what are some of our other favorite moments or, or memorable moments from the film? I quite like every time I'm reminded that this is Cold War era, which is a lot in that film. Watched it through earlier today, and it was the only thing I could think of throughout. Just how every Slugworth moment is framed. I'm just thinking, Cold War. Cold War. Every every TV moment as well, and every vaguely competitive moment, I'm just thinking, it's definitely the 70s. <laughs> to be fair, like with every Slughorn framing, I feel like it's like suddenly turning into a Hitchcock movie. I'm just trying to think how... How could chocolate be used to win the Cold War? How can space win it? Like, oh no, that was always just a power play, right? Chocolate is too. We can get to we can get to space. Look what we could do to you. Here is just look at all the great chocolate we have. What could we do to you? Give it. Here you go. <laughs> it was actually called the Cuban Chocolate Crisis. They just had a ship of chocolate bars that couldn't go over a certain like borderline, which they were just like, if you do this, we're going to start a war. There was also a deleted scene in my brain where Fidel Castro has chocolate cigars. <laughs> oh no, there's a deleted scene in my head where uh, Fidel Castro has a golden ticket and he's like, hey! <laughs> <laughs> it's almost as uh, realistic as him winning the lottery three times. Hey, you never know, maybe he was the, the uh, guy from South America who won the fifth ticket, but then it turned out to be a fake. 
I was going to say, yeah, because that's almost interesting that, the again, the Tim Burton version, I think it's Russians who fake the ticket. So, again, like talking real world politics, you know, back then they were like, oh, those South Americans, like this day, they're like, oh, those Russians, you know, so that that is quite telling to when the films are made. Maybe that's something that'll show up in the prequel is Russia decides to have its own Willy Wonka. <laughs> North Korea is trying to find out uh, the <laughs> secrets of Wonka. <laughs> Mentioning like when it's filmed and stuff, I think is interesting as well. Because something that was kind of, kind of bugged me as a kid, which I find is interesting again and is very much a movie business kind of thing, is the look of the film, like where it's filmed. And even as a kid, I was kind of like, where is this set? Why does it look like Germany? And it is, you know, for budget reasons, it was filmed in Munich, Germany. And, you know, and what I find absolutely hilarious, can anybody tell me what the Wonka factory actually is in real life? Was it, was it like a like a munition factory or something? Yeah, yeah, it was a, uh, <laughs> yeah. It's the Munich Gasworks factory. <laughs> <laughs> Not much of a stretch to change to killing children then. <laughs> yeah, <that's>... Jesus! <laughs> it's the film. <laughs> <laughs> but like, even like the idea that like Grandpa Joe and Charlie were literally moments away from being like diced meat is, mm. like, insanely dark. Well, Craig mentioned that uh, remix of the Wrong Sir scene. One of my favourites, or, like, parodies of Char- uh, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, and again, I think this speaks to its kind of legacy and how famous the film is, is because they've parodied, parodied it so much. You see, obviously, Oompa Loompa costumes, the kind of, like, classic look. So much from this film is, like, referenced in pop culture, even before we recorded, we were talking about the Wonka bars, you know, so you don't really see the Tim Burton Wonka bars. You see the, you know, Gene Wilder saw ones. And um, yeah, there's a sketch by College Humor from years and years ago called Fizzy Lifting Drinks. And it's just like a minute long animation in which they can't burp. So it's just literally like this grim death of Grandpa Joe as he like, he's like, I can't burp. And he's just like, Jesus, Grandpa. And he's like, <laughs> swallow some air or something. And then literally it's just like blood shreds all over the the corridor. And Charlie just there like, oh. And then it's just half his grandpa like, go head first, Charlie. It will be less painful. And then you just see him slowly floating up going, come with me and we'll be. And then he's I just like at what part like it's so bizarre to me like just like how was this okayed like just the I like the concept like at what point do producers test audiences go hang on a moment let's uh let's rethink that because it is quite scary they are like they're like screaming for their lives they're like help oh my god you know so i can see why they made that sketch because it is quite traumatizing it does seem like they're genuinely gonna die yeah but that's the thing like like even jurassic park like the opening scene to that with with the velociraptor again is another moment that i can immediately think of is like like the the rating on that okay what is it like pg so parental guidance but even then Like, it's still a bit like, whew, let's hang on a moment. Can anyone remember the original book or was like, you know, has read it or like has has strong feelings of reading it? Because that, you know, that song is in the book, the tunnel song. So when he does, you know, sing the whole, you know, there's no way of knowing. But again, because it's such a short story, you know, a children's book, it's hard to get the context of, you know, what's happening. You just hear that all of the parents are kind of like, he's mad, what's going on? You know, all this kind of stuff. So... 
it could be adapted in one of many ways. You know, I, I guess the Burton version kind of keeps the scariness of like they're scared about not knowing where they go in and they're on the boat and stuff like that. But the the Gene Wilder one does bring in all this imagery and stuff, which is definitely not in the book. You know, Roald Dahl didn't write a chicken gets beheaded on the on the side of them. For me, that scene just encapsulates why I think Gene Wilder is my favorite part of the uh, favorite part of the film. Just that you have no idea exactly what to expect from him from any from any situation. Like the fact that he has the weird journey of being a frail old man to begin with, then coming straight back to life and being energetic, uh, consistently being authoritative and and wise with all his information, then just plain psycho uh, plain psychotic in terms of just the imagery, then just blasé to the deaths of uh, to the deaths of children, even to the point of like some of my favorite quotes of being. No, stop, come back. Help, which I'll, I'll, please, murder. <laughs> which I'll still, I will still quote from time to time when somebody like kicks up a fuss about something I just don't care about. Um, then getting actually emotionally invested right at the end, both in terms of disappointment and anger and utter joy. It's just, you don't know where you stand with the guy and it's just incredibly beautiful. Like genuinely one of Gene Wilder's like best performances. Yeah, because there's that whole thing as well about, like, the only thing he wanted changed in the film was to add that forward role because his ideology was, they will never know if I'm telling the truth from this point on. Yeah. And it just works so well. Yeah, because I I think, like, I don't know what it is about Johnny Depp's one. I'm not knocking at all, but, like, there's just something about it that just, like, goes in a different direction of weird that doesn't quite land as well as Wilder's, I think. Yeah, they go for the socially isolated meaning that he has he has no filter in interactions, um, which just doesn't have the same... To me, that, so, that doesn't have the same sort of impact of, whim, uh, of whimsy and, and, like, fear, because you just know that the guy's going to be too honest with you, if that makes sense. Um, especially considering that, like, there's no... Because there's no like moral test, right? The ending of that film is literally just um, he says, "Yep, Charlie, the factory's yours, so long as you never see your family again." Charlie's like, "No, I'm not going to do that. I love my family." And then that that becomes like the end conflict of just getting getting uh, Wonka to to see his his father, who was so keen on abandoning the child, he moved his entire house. Which it's like my favorite facet of that film is that Chris, Christopher Lee's dentist father was so disappointed in his child he took he yeeted his entire house off of the street to so we don't know where the house is a, a terraced house not even like an end house, terrace yeah. this was like in the middle of the you road you literally <laughs> see the pipes spewing water from where he's had to cut off from the mains another thing i was going to say is like in terms of like compare and contrast like with Wilders, like, you know, like, there's a part of me that actually believes that he could run a chocolate factory with Wonka, like, like with Johnny Depp's Wonka, I kind of feel like I'm like, how, how did you, how do you do taxes, sir? <laughs> well, again, that's why I think of them, like, similar to, like, the Joker is kind of like, you know, say, for example, you know, maybe a bad example in terms of, like, the actual performance that we got. But in terms of like what people were saying before the performance, but Jared Leto was Joker, for example, he couldn't live up to Heath Ledger as the Joker. You just can't, you know, you, you can't top that performance. You can't do anything similar. And there's so many facets of the character that you can only do something different. So, you know, I appreciate it in, in the sense of like it, they are completely different performances. For me, I think 
I, neither of them to me is still captured actually like the character in the book I think again because it's such a like simplistic character as is you know many of the characters in the book you know it's it's kind of hard to sort of like maybe encapsulate that because you can do that very well in like literary terms because you've got words and you you know you've got your imagination um but both times it's, it's, it's interesting that both actors have kind of brought like the dark elements to it and the scriptwriters as well i think like johnny depp for example wanted to focus on more the kind of like showman game show presenter elements of wonka which i thought was interesting you see that come through at certain parts but obviously burton and the writers were more interested in like greg said that kind of like isolated kind of weird version so you know i appreciate it for being something different and it's something i enjoy but i think the gene wilder does definitively still own the character especially in the sense that he's got the traditional brown hat the purple coat and everything like that but i you know so when you think of willy wonka the character within film i think of him whether he's like willy wonka from the book i don't think maybe he is but then i don't think johnny depp is either and i don't know if anybody ever would be so i think it's kind of like just down to that person's interpretation how they adapt that character and make it their own i think the big difference here between the two of them is neither of them necessarily encapsulate the character but uh gene's performance encapsulates the book like if you look at like johnny depp's willy wonka you've got him very awkward his movements he, he he just walks around effectively like a really shy lawyer and he's got this bob that's just so perfectly done you think he's he's was granted as a child maybe an entire PR team to curate everything he does even imply in that film that the Umpa Lumpers all their songs are rehearsed in advance that kind of things it just feels so incredibly manufactured so for me like you compare that to Gene and he's got he's got the wild hair he's got the wild personality that's not necessarily trying to be the character it's trying to be the entire book and I think that's why it's memorable I think that's a fair point. I think that's a point that no one can really argue with, goddamn. <laughs> to me, a lot of the reasons that people love this version of the film, which is interesting because obviously, like I said, we've talked about it in terms of like why it's dark and psychotic, but so many people like rag on the Burton version because they're like, it's it's dark and scary. This should be about pure imagination and like, you know, Disney and kind of like everything is lovely and happy endings. And I'm just like, but it's Roald Dahl. That's not what Roald Dahl is about. And you know, granted, again, like, Burton made it kind of like Burton meets style. But, yeah, I don't think that a lot of people th- look at this film through the lens of nostalgia and the kind of, like, pure imagination. So I love the songs in this film, but I don't necessarily love them in the film. Like, I like, you know, pure imagination, great song, Candyman. Uh, I've Got a Golden Ticket is really great. But, again, I just don't think they quite work within the, the story of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory because it seems like almost a contrast to what, would want you know that you've got kind of like happy singing along kind of lyrics when usually when he does have like the Oompa Loompa stuff for example uh you know it's kind of like singing about how horrible these children are etc because obviously the Oompa Loompa doobity doo stuff is original to that film was at least Tim uh sorry Danny Elfman was drawing some of the lyrics from uh Dahl's versions of of those songs but I'm not using that as a point to sort of say why that film is better I'm just saying that the songs within Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory don't seem like a genuine sort of bit of what what Dahl would have wanted. Yeah, but I think there are lots of instances where where a lot of filmmakers, songwriters, etc., will try and 
uh, will try and hide like darkness within sort of like light fluffiness. I mean, you just have to watch entire lists of just uh, songs which seem really happy with dark, with like sort of dark backgrounds, like uh, like um, uh, Hey Ya by Outkast, right? That's a song about divorce, but it's one of the most like upbeat, peppy things you can imagine. And I think, and I think like all the happy songs you're talking like that you're talking about do generally happen sort of bookending the experiences within the factory. So it's like it is taking what people expect this entire experience within the factory to be, and then the actual within the factory, the darkness is just like the Oompa Loompa sort of subverting that with like because they tend to be like the quirkier, like, more disorientating songs, right? Like, you know, Candyman is quite uh, sweet melody, uh, pure imagination, sweet melody. Oompa Loompa songs are all quite choppy and changing, even to the point that the last one goes, like, really deep and dramatic because it just really slows down the pace. So I think just for the atmosphere, it it does work for me. I also love how cyclical... Uh, the film industry is that like they tried to keep the Burton one somewhat musical with just the Oompa Loompa songs and then going okay this prequel is going to be a full musical yeah the the prequel is just such an odd choice again because it is kind of one of those things to me of like why do I want to know like you said earlier like it's like the Joker why do we need to know that story um but I think interestingly as well is that what that's why I kind of see Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory as a kind of like almost as if they are doing like you know we want to have our version of mary poppins or it's a kind of chitty chitty bang bang sort of wizard of oz kind of like approach to it of being like these kind of like painted sets and this kind of like old hollywood sort of approach of having this more like charming story so to me i've always seen it as kind of like hollywood being like oh let's make this charming um even though maybe the source material isn't but it's just interesting to me that when people do say like, oh, yeah, the newer one is so weird and dark and stuff. I'm like, you've seen the tunnel scene, right? You know, so again, that's just more a criticism to the people who sort of only see it as like a happy, magical kind of film. The moment that always sticks into my head is right at the start when Charlie's just finished his paper round going past the factory. And you get the tinker coming with just a, a crate just of knives and knives and cleavers going up the windy mountain, down the something, something, something. And it's, it's pitch black and there's eerie music in the background and suddenly the lights turn on. And I'm just sat there thinking, how the hell do people go from all yay happy than that and not suddenly think, oh damn, this film's going to be petrifying. And I think the fact that you've kind of set the tone with that maybe means that it doesn't matter how happy everything from there on is the happiness scares you because you've already had this tone set. Well, yeah, like, again, bringing up those, like, moments we said about before, you know, where they've added these kind of, like, weird sketches of, like, the hysteria over the golden tickets, as, you know, Liv said, etc. It's a very 70s kind of thing to do. And, you know, it pads out the story maybe for sort of budget reasons, but it does kind of add, like, its own sort of style to it of, like, these filmmakers going, like, oh, let's look at this kind of, like, hysteria because... Again, within the book and the story and everything, it's kind of like it just, you know, everyone's just talking about on the news, you know, how it's going crazy around the world. But the interesting thing about this film is because there's so much parody and memes have been made from it, it kind of almost as if the film was doing that early on, you know. So, like, one of my favorite scenes is when you do get, you know, it, it's, it's odd within the film, but I kind of do still like it in it on itself. It's just these little sketches that you get. 
And it's that one where the guy is laying down. He's like, I've had this dream and the, the angel tells me where I can find the Wonka ticket. And the therapist just like, he's just like, and, and what's it say? He's like, oh, it's just a dream. He's like, tell me where the ticket is, man, you know. And, and then you get that bizarre one where like, um, a woman's husband has been taken for ransom like hostage situation and all they want like in return for him is like a crate of wonka bars and the woman has to like say like how much time have i got to think it over of whether she wants to give up her wonka bars for a kidnapped husband i think the only thing that would have made that harsher because when i was first rewatching, i had to rewind and be like wait did they say husband because if it was a child or something that can you imagine how dark that would have been if it was like but your son has been kidnapped but that's the thing like you can you can be as like to the book as you can be but if in the book it's just people on the news talking about it there's not enough dramatic tension whereas having these like comedic scenes and frenzied scenes of people making it such a big deal you've already put this character of Willy Wonka in people's minds of oh okay he's he's a big deal he means this I can't wait to see what he's actually like like it's it's a structured method and it does work so like as much as you can be okay yeah I I could happily do a couple of cut-ins of news reporters talking about it and then maybe one or two families talking about it it doesn't have the same it doesn't keep you as engaged as seeing those people going absolutely bananas for it i will say like i think it's an ode to the writing not just of the scriptwriters, but for dahl himself to have quite an extensive list of characters in a short medium to have them all stand out as much as they do and especially for that moral of like like charlie like being there by luck and having this moral story of being a good person is like really good but to have all of these children as pantomime and stereotypical as their tropes may be stand out as well as they do and nobody really steals a scene from each other and each one has their comeuppance and their justification and their own song is absolutely fantastic to be able to give those characters that and not undermine each other is fantastic and even just the fact that Veruca gets her own song herself as well like that's quite a good song as well is you know I want the world because I, I quite often think of that when say somebody is having like a moment of greed or something like you know like oh I want to get that you know like thousand pound you know like extravagant purchase and i just always think in my head like i want the world i want da, da, da. you know it's just like that is like the one thing that does irk me in that movie is how bad the lip sync is for that scene. yeah like when she has the like i yeah. do like shake it around it's like oh <laughs> yeah that absolute moment it's like hold on a minute that's not real but in terms of imagery and stuff, I will say that, like, I think that um, Violet, I think, like, hers, the blueberry is, like, that's such a like, iconic image. Uh, and, you know, just makes me interested in, like, the actual prop, because when the, the Oompa-Loompas are rolling her around, you can kind of just see her head, like, rolling around. And I'm just like, is that the kid? Or is that, like, some sort of plastic mannequin head? I don't know. Well, everyone, like, all of it is, like, so, like... It stands a testament to itself because, like, everyone knows Augustus in the pipe. Everyone knows Violet turning into Violet the Blueberry. Like, I'm obviously not so much the, um, maybe the ceiling fan because obviously it's not in the Burton version, but the Mike TV stuff as well. Like, every one of them is almost like a complete juxtaposition from the last, but like, 
it like on paper like if someone went right every scene is for one character and it's a different way from the last you'd be like oh that sounds tricky and i don't know how that's gonna land but the fact that it all just flows together seamlessly is brilliant Yeah, well, we'll go like now to uh, in terms of talking about like the legacy and everything like that was memorable from these films. We go to our section, which is the movie vault, uh, which is our film vault that preserves movies for all time uh, as memorable pieces of history, whether that be for good reasons or bad reasons. So, uh, Liv, I'll go to you first. Do you think that this film deserves to go into the movie vault and why? Definitely. It's an absolute cult classic. I don't think there is a single person born after the mid-70s who hasn't seen it in their childhood and who can't reference at least something from it. Yeah, absolutely. You've got to. It's just like, I'd even, I'd put Burton's version in there as well. Like, just for the parallels and to compare and contrast. But like, it's just one of those things... Just the concept is so bulletproof of children going to a chocolate factory. It's almost Pied Piper-esque in the way that they're taken through it. Like, it's just... Oh, magnifique. He even has the little, like, flute there. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Uh, Craig. Yeah, of course. Although, for me, only original. You know know my issues with Burton's film. Yeah, I, I will admit that I think for the fact this is celebrating 50 years as much, I think like you are right, Kyle, that they're interesting to have together even to say, oh, this is how times have changed, as we were saying earlier, like, oh, you know, like he's playing video games and then he was watching Westerns with Mike TV, etc. And to show how adaptations can change and you can take it in two completely different directions, but also have similarities. I think because this is celebrating its 50th anniversary and because this, as Liv said, is especially because it's such a cult classic film and it's got so many like nuances and weird things just in itself i think it's important to remember for for that that reason alone um whereas again maybe the burton version would be like a source source celebration of burton um but i think this film itself just that you know it's not so much like oh this is a depiction of what doll adaptate perfect doll adaptations are like it's just its own thing it's just become like I said earlier some people see it as a kind of magical disney-esque sort of film people like us probably more the like oh it's got some really effed up shit with you know like scary tunnels and you know all kind of weird moments and this kind of very 70s aesthetic of like you know the the fruit wallpaper and all that kind of stuff and the the gimmicky jokes as well of when uh, Gene Wilder's like putting shoes into potions. He's like, gives it a little kick and all this kind of stuff. It's, it's very much of, of that time. So yeah, I think Into the Movie Vault goes Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Quickly though, wh- why do you th- why do you think that they wanted to call it Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory? I don't know if it's like they thought like, oh, the audience is Charlie or something, or like you know, put yourself in the shoes of the kid who's just like, oh, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory sounds more amazing. Or Surely something. it's going to be for marketability reasons, right? If one of the entire things they wanted to do uh, was basically sell chocolate alongside it, it's a lot harder to basically go, well, I got a Wonka bar from Charlie and the Chocolate Factory as opposed to I got a Wonka bar from Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Yeah. By Joe, he's got it. By Joe. Brilliant. 
Endgame time, and welcome, my friends, to Market Snackability. I tried. One of the things I miss uh, about the cinema uh, industry at the moment is that you got in the past you had a lot more direct film cinema tie-ins to like food and snacks and sort of that marketing, right? You'd see things like you would see things like you know Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle based sweets. Um, you'd see like a lot of serials, which are just like various film characters, loads and loads of things like that. I miss that. So what I've decided for this game is I've got five different films or film franchises that I want you to come up with a, a brand new snack based on that film, right? The only rules for this game, well, two rules. One, you'll have 30 seconds to basically come up with your pitch. Two, it has to be a food that could genuinely exist, right? So you cannot be like, oh, this is going to be snozberry flavoured. I'm, I'm bringing that up because at no point for the entirety of the episode so far have we said the word snozberry. And I, I find that disgusting. What's a snozberry? <laughs> I, I will strike you. Um, <laughs> so it has to be something that could exist, right? So it can't just be like, say, if one of the films I gave you was Harry Potter, it can't be like one of the fictional animal meat, right? Are we clear on the rules or do we have any questions? Does human meat count? Okay. You said what I was thinking. Something that could be genuinely sold and we would not get a visit from the police. (laughs) Right? So this is also, you cannot also just market drugs um, because that would also be slightly problematic. Right, well, that's all of my pictures in the bin. (laughs) Something that that wouldn't appear in Abe's odd world. (laughs) The way this will be judged is that we'll we'll listen to your pitch, uh, to your pitches for each film, and then David and I will decide which one we prefer. Uh, Prefer the sound of in terms of what we would want to eat, uh, and then award the points based off of it. Okay, so your first film or film franchise is... X-Men, and your 30 seconds starts now. Right, I'm going to go with an ultimate food blend for mutations. Well, so okay, wait, be... wait, 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 no, no, the end of the 30 seconds and then... Oh, uh, okay. This isn't like fastest one first. Oh, well, I'm eager. And that's 30 seconds. All right, then, Kyle, as you're so eager, Liv, what food are you going to suggest to us? Okay, right. You may love this, you may hate this, but it is exceptionally, uh, like, well-tuned to what the X-Men series is about, and that is blue body paint. So this is going to be like just your classic brunch bar, but on the outside. It's, you know how a lot of dyes are edible? You're going to have blue dye, and it tastes just like your standard brunch bar, but you can use it for blue face paint. Okay, so just getting it, so just to be clear, the marketability of this snack is that it doubles up as a costume. <laughs> You can be Mystique. You can be anyone you want to be when you have this brunch bar. Parents are going to love you for that. It's just be like, oh, have you been eating that X-Men brunch bar again? (laughs) And luckily, if you want to be Violet from Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory, it works for another franchise. Okay. So we have that pitch. 
Kyle. Keeping in theme with mutation, I was going to go with a mutated sandwich. So it's part hot dog, part hamburger and part pizza. Don't ask me how the logistics of keeping that that some bitch together works, <laughs> but I'm I'm going purely for mutation reasons that it has to be a bit chaotic. Okay. So David, what do you think? I think I would have to go with the brunch bar just because it's kind of like the more fun item and it kind of like you would see the blue and be like, Oh yeah, X-Men. Like I don't know if I would see burger, hot dog, pizza and go, Oh, X-Men. <laughs> like <laughs> if anything, you might be offended if you were like a mutant to be like, What are you trying to say? That like I'm a hot dog of all these different things. <laughs> to be fair, like what a- you've de- what you've described with a hot dog burger pizza is basically what I have like once every other two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> well the thing is, if we're going on pitches alone if the brunch bar's only blue, you can only be <laughs> Kurt Wagner or Mystique. That's all I'm saying. Beast? Damn it. <laughs> I'm, I'm intrigued as to why why a brunch bar was there a reason as to why why, why what was unique? What what was about a brunch bar in the X-Men universe? They have to be ready for anything. I it's don't know. It's a school bar, like I don't know. Superheroes need energy. Fair. Okay, so the first point goes to live. Don't know how. Well, I mean, just wait until you see some of the ones we've got coming up. Okay, ready for film number two. How to train your dragon and your time starts now. When does he get it? He doesn't. Why not? Because he broke the rules. What rules? We didn't see any rules, did we, Charlie? Wrong, sir, wrong. Wrong, sir, wrong. Wrong, sir, wrong. And that's 30 seconds. Fittingly, right on the you lose. Okay, Kyle, what snack are you pitching? I'm going to pitch a hot dog company that the carton containers are dragon themed and that the sausage itself is supposed to build up their uh, their, their integral body part. The, the sternum, and uh, depending on each dragon, has a different variety of spice to it. And because of the time period as well, it's tailored to adults, so it comes with a mead. Okay. So, we've gone for an entire franchising there. Interesting. Liv, what are you suggesting? Okay, so... The, the, I'm sticking with the initial idea that I didn't quite develop in my mind... Right. We've got, when you go to buy this wonderful promotional product, you've got a drone, and then on top of it, you've got a slab of raw pork. (laughs) It's like meat and flying. That's what a dragon is made up from. (laughs) (laughs) My mind didn't get past the raw meat. Your minds didn't even think to cook the pork. <laughs> no, because when you when uh, like you open up a dragon, the meat is raw. So salmonella. <laughs> I just like to remind everyone that this is meant to be like you know a snack based thing. I just have this image now of just live 
like I had like a vending cart just handing out like pieces of raw pork and just like I'm really sorry I've run out of drones because drones are expensive. <laughs> yeah, it comes with free tech. I, I'm just imagining like an army, like you know when you see like in Spider-Man: Far From Home, like all the drones, like they're just coming in with just little bits of pork underneath, and they're like the military just watching with binoculars, like what the hell is that? All right, David. Heathrow uh, is shut down by a uh, by a snack. <laughs> all right, David. Uh, who are you who are you gonna vote for? As much as I love the insanity of uh, <laughs> the uh, Deliveroo option of uh, <laughs> raw meat, I think I'm gonna have to go with. I like the fact that Kyle added like the spiced meat into like the hot dog because you know the How to Train Your Dragon. You know they have green dragons and red and yellow, and they're all different like powers and stuff like that. So. It kind of fits in with that, so I quite like that. So yeah, my votes for uh, for Kyle's. Yeah, I also like the idea of the containers. Uh, I think you could have probably done a bit more to basically say like the buns could be somewhat dragon shaped, but talking about the actual dog itself being like part of the specifically the sternum of the dragon. Um, <laughs> I know. I was like, wait, are we talking about Titanic or something? <laughs> but at least it was at least it was shape description uh, in comparison to what I love about the flying drones of raw pork meat. Um, so yeah, uh, in that situation, point to Carl. Okay, are we ready for your third film, The Wolf of Wall Street? Time starts now. go to live so i figured since the last one was quite wildly out there i would go in the complete opposite direction and go as normal as possible so um the promotional product here is going to be because it's you know about the money in that in that show it's going to be a packet of uh, christmas chocolate coins but with the wolf of wall street poster on the uh, tag okay so going for pure advertising on what is an actual edible product. Okay, Kyle. So mine is less of just one product and more of a party service for children. And everything there is pure candy, but made to look as close to drugs as humanly possible. So we're talking like little quaalude, like like mints, or like the little um, sherbet candies. We've got like ground up, like powdered cocaine that obviously is not cocaine, but more like frosting and icing mix. Yeah, we're we're te- we're teaching kids a valuable lesson with a class A stock market drug fueled party. Do the kids still snort it? That's up to the kids. Is is it actually just going to be like that community episode in which like they all eat the candy and then at the end of it they they like have to turn on the candy and it's like oh I get it now like you've like given them the reliance on drugs and then they've realized that they don't want it. It's, it's genius. <laughs> just to say you've you 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 frame this as a party service for kids. What I imagine yes. is that it 
could you explain that a little bit more? Because I'm just getting this image of like, you know, you get party planners. You're basically mm-hmm. saying, so for your 12th, so your child's 12th birthday, what I'll do is I'll bring around a load of sweets made to look like drugs, give them to the kids and let nature take its course. Absolutely. No, no, no responsibility taken. It's all in the hands of God now. Oh, Jesus Christ. Uh, so while while Liv went more grounded, I went the opposite route. <laughs> I just imagine it kind of like those people who like have a pick a mix or something at their wedding. It's just like the entire thing has been organized by some other company, but just come along this random company that's done the sweets and just that bit is just the weird, like, what is that doing there? Like, everything else is normal, just that. We're talking the love hearts as quaaludes. We're talking <laughs> little tabs of lsd as little like like um sour patches they put on their tongues we're going all out oh wow right david right. What, do, what do we think i think just so that like we're not like <laughs> chased down for like a donut children taking drugs i'm gonna have to go with this idea <laughs> yeah i'm ahead of my time damn it <laughs> I mean, if if you are able to find me a viable large audience who are okay with their children emulating taking drugs, give them. Bear in mind that like that already there's enough enough people who frown upon children eating sweets as if they're smoking cigarettes. I can't imagine mm. how it how it looks as if they're honking cocaine. Point to live. Okay, are we ready for number four? This is definitely probably my favorite for let's see if anyone's willing to go there. Ready? Black Beauty. And your time starts now. Right. So let's see what snacks have been suggested for the beautiful story about an incredibly beloved horse. Kyle. I was thinking, keeping in terms with party planning now, it's a piñata, like like the horse, but when you break it, it comes out with like molded shaped chocolates that are also in the shape of the horse. But if you opt for the premium package, they come with little candy sticks that if you break one of your horse's legs, you get to put it down. (laughs) (laughs) I was honestly terrified that you were going to be like, when you break it open, some jelly organs come out or something. I was like, oh my God, what has he done? It's literally at every stage. I was just like, oh, where is this gonna go? Yeah. And then we and then we've gone for the losers of the Grand National. Also, put it down. Like <laughs> What? <laughs> oh okay. You can't have a horse with a main leg, okay? <laughs> but how do you put down a chocolate horse? You take the candy stick and you lodge it in the brain. <laughs> Oh God! Somewhere in the world, Alex McCready is crying. Anyway, live. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, um, all I all I can envision now is children really violently beating up a pinata horse. Um, 
But no, I, I was originally thinking along the lines of like a, a horse meat hot dog with the words nay mustarded on it. But I assumed you were going to take horse meat. So uh, in the end, my mind went to a box of like carrots. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Just carry on. Please carry on. Yeah, and, and other vegetables that horses would eat. And I know they like carrots and other things too. In, in like um, a nest of hay in this box. So it looks like nice and organic, like you'd buy it at Waitrose. And it's just like in a nice, pretty countryside, very countryside basket, these vegetables. And you just advertise them as the same diet as Black Beauty. And people will be really into it because it's organic. Okay, so we have two options in front of us, David. Do we have eating like a Black Beauty lunchbox, so you eat like Black Beauty, or a Black Beauty pinata, where you have the opportunity, if you pay that little bit extra, to put down loads of miniature Black Beauties? Uh, I'm honestly surprised the ninjas didn't go like, right, horse meat on a drone. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I d yeah, I don't know. It's like you said, I don't know. Like the idea of just like a parent being like, my child is going to eat like a horse. <laughs> so, it's somewhat, somewhat tickles me. <laughs> it's like a child would walk into school with like their dearly lunchable and then some other kid would just get out a box of like root vegetables. <laughs> so, uh, I but think, David, I think you would genuinely get a lot of kids actually eating the vegetables like that. If you just say, if you want to be strong like Black Beauty, eat the Black Beauty lunchbox, which is just vegetables. Yeah. But I wouldn't lie. If I was given that lunchbox, I wouldn't use my hands as well. I would eat it like Black Beauty. Uh, see, I like the idea with the piñata. I like where Carl was going with that. But then, I don't know, I suppose as soon as you mentioned, like, a piñata has to open up, that's just leading to all sorts of chaos. So regardless of what Kyle's idea of like the putting the horses down, I think even the idea of like cracking it open, I just thought of intestines. So I'm probably going to go with the, uh, with the root vegetables on this one. See, just because, oh, I'm slightly, I'm personally slightly torn because I think both ideas are great in different ways. So this is what I'm, this is what I'm going to do. I am going to split the point in half and give one each, uh, give one each side. So because I because there's a small part of me that also thinks that a lot of a lot of children uh, and would want black beauty parties where you could have those pinatas. So it's a case of I think Carl's is more popular for the kids, but Liv's mm. is more popular for the parents. So I'm going to give them half a point each. So at that point, basically half each. So going into the final film, we currently have Liv with 2.5, Kyle 1.5. If, uh, if Kyle wins this next round, it'll be a tie, and then we will do uh, a tie break, which will basically be one final film, and David solely decides who wins. Okay, are you ready for the final film? So this film is the Lego movie, and your time starts now.
Okay. Disclaimer, before we even get any of the ideas, don't eat Legos. You can't eat plastic. <laughs> don't do it, guys. Live. Right, so the moment you mentioned Lego, my mind instantly went to what Lego tastes like. Because contrary to uh, this disclaimer, most of us have probably had some Lego in our mouths at some point. Um, tearing bricks apart from other bricks when they get stuck together, that kind of thing. So I was thinking, what else has the texture and the, the crunchiness of these bricks? And that is really hard sugar structures, you know, when you're, you're moulding sugar, that kind of thing. So I was thinking, like, sugar, shaped like maybe the little minifigures or maybe just a brick wall, but all the pieces are stuck together, so you have to, like, really bite to pull them apart as if it were real Lego. And um, it wouldn't taste sugary, though. It would taste slightly plasticky, but it would have the sort of, once you break it apart, the texture of those... Uh, Candy bracelets. Okay. So okay. essentially like a candy bracelet-esque style Lego. Okay, interesting. The taste of plastic. The taste. Yeah, how would you make something taste of plastic but be safe? Use the right E-numbers. Okay, cool. Right, Kyle. Similar sort of thing. Like, we've all had the problem with eating Lego. So, to get around this disclaimer... I have decided to create your own jello plastic molds that come with jello packets that you can make different little Lego structures and people and you can use the gelatin itself to have different coloured limbs and body parts. So at least then if your children want to make food or something fun and want to eat their Legos, they can do it safely. Okay, so we've got Hardened sugar, uh, sugar Lego versus Jello Lego. David, what do you think? I think ultimately, when you're going to make a food product based off Lego or the Lego Movie, there's always going to be some kind of like, hmm, should you do this? So I suppose you know either ones are going to be like a bad idea in some way or form. Yeah, I kind of like the idea with the the candy bracelet, like that description, because I kind of couldn't get an idea of it before that. But then the idea of like breaking into that, pulling it off that made more sense to me but i kind of wish that was more the idea like bricks on a necklace or something like that so i i think the lego might do like the similar jello thing with like ice cubes or something but yeah i'm gonna go for the lego lego jello so when i thought about this lego jello is one of the things already in my mind mm, that's what my head went to as well Sl a slight advantage there yeah, I think for the sake of making things interesting, I think I am going to vote for Lego Jello as well. So Kyle gets the point. Also, the the idea of something tasting like plastic is a bit dodgy. But then I thought of bean. <laughs> there is bean. There is uh, those jelly beans bean boozled, which gets like you know snot flavor and you know all that kind of stuff. So I'm like that. It can be done. Yeah. The snot one <laughs> tastes nicer than the cinnamon one. I'm putting that out there. So <laughs> fun fact: when I was a kid, there was actually something that would have worked for this. Uh, what they did was there was I can't remember which which it was, but there was a a yogurt brand whose entire selling point was that once you've eaten the yogurt, you can wash out the pots and use them like Lego. So they would like slot together as building bricks, which was an interesting. I, I don't know how you do the bottom slotting together, but I don't know. Anyway, so that's at the end of that. That's two point five points each. So split right down the middle. So as as promised, there will be a tiebreaker. David will be the sole judge for this. And this is the final film to decide your 
film-based snack. Ready? My favourite movie, Whiplash. Your time starts now. then david who do you want to hear first uh let's go with kyle first isn't it? so i was thinking about like you know those little animal cookies with like the chocolate on the backs in the shape of animals i was thinking that for like drum sets but with the added bonus of getting ones with like little jam filling for miles teller's blood <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> what, and what? Uh, so yeah, they're they're drum shaped, but yeah, they've got the blood from yeah okay, drum okay. drum shaped little cookies. But the occasional right, one okay. reminds us of the oppression that <laughs> and live. Okay, so disclaimer before I throw this one out there: it didn't occur to me till the end of the thirty seconds that something could be musical. You know. um to do with a musical-related film. So uh, this is just one of the most iconic scenes in Whiplash, reconstructed in a bake-off showstopper style and uh, sold in the cake aisle of Asda. So it's going to be like, um, it's going to be about this big and it's going to be a car on its side made of icing, cake and sugar snap. And uh, there's going to be, like, blue sugar smashed all across, like, the cardboard for, like, where the window's smashed. And there's going to be, like, strawberry jam smothering the scene. And then there's going to be, like, a massive dent in the top of the car. (laughs) And um, we're just going to have a little icing figure of Miles Teller, like, reaching out out of the, uh, the, like, the plastic see-through cover of the box. Just, like, trying to get to his rehearsal thingy. Yeah. So just to... <laughs> <laughs> Solid cake idea. That sounds I mean, great. Have we, got, have we got an ice in J.K. Simmons? That is, that's the cl- clincher. Have we got an ice in version of J.K. Simmons, I think. Just on the side, like, raging. <laughs> okay, I'm not, I'm not going to say my opinions on these. I um, uh, As per the rules, I'm going to go to David. Hmm. So different. So different. Um. Right. I'm I'm gonna ask one question just because I think that they both sound very good. They both sound very interesting. So I'm gonna ask you: if I was to like open one of these and like eat it, what am I tasting? What are the flavors in these uh, these foods? So, Liv, what what does this cake taste like? <laughs> Metal. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was thinking. So everything in it will be high in iron, magnesium. You know those kind of like this. <laughs> The stuff you get in a vitamin tablet. So you've like got that spinachiness in the background to just be like, you can taste the metal of the car and the iron in Teller's blood. But you've also got that strawberry coming through. That's the hope <laughs> that he will get that. A strawberry and spinach flavoured cake. Not spinach. Spinachy. <laughs> Great for protein. <laughs> oh uh, my god. Kyle. Basic vanilla cookie biscuit with chocolate back with a smidgen of raspberry if you should opt for the raspberry infused flavoured ones. They're so different. 
Yeah, I went for the pure marketability and Liv just went off. Did, did Ra- like, when you say, Ra- like, is it like wagon wheels? You can buy them with the raspberry or not? Is that? Yes. Yeah. Right. I just went for what I thought I would buy. <laughs> what, zinc tablets? <laughs> yeah. In the form of a massive car crash cake. <laughs> you know, I'm going to go based on just for the boldness of the idea i'm yeah. gonna go for live because i think if if kyle had said that they were all raspberry ones and you had like just bloodied drum kits like throughout i would have like maybe gone for it but i don't know if you could actually there go was no see... way there was no way i'm winning against a full cake of a car <laughs> yeah, showstopper with a, di- but... with a dying miles teller <laughs> trying to get to the rehearsal <laughs> and i'm just intrigued to try and find this strawberry flavor amongst the metal flavors yeah. of this. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's the challenge i want to find the strawberry flavor in it so after that description of what is supposedly according to live one of the most iconic scenes of the film when if i ask any person on the street who knows whiplash what would you say is an iconic scene of that film none would say the car crash in a (laughs) film all about jazz drum solos but nevertheless Liv is the ultimate winner congratulations see i did think how could i recreate the scene of throwing a symbol at someone's head but i thought that would be too hard so i went for the other one I, I was thinking about just going with popcorn because he goes to the movies, and I was like, that's f- shit. I mean, I would have gone with licorice uh, licorice whiplash, because you can get licorice. Yeah, I was. I had that idea. Too simple. I too wasn't simple. convinced. Wasn't it's, convinced. It's like, the, it's like the drum cookies. There's just no, like, other element to it. <laughs> I'm, just think, I'm just imagining the cake aisle. That's why I was thinking in my head, is imagining all these, like, kids' cakes, Spider-Man, you know, the unicorn ones, and then just that there. And then everyone, like, what is that? Madness, as usual. Uh, what else do we expect? Not only from an endgame, but uh, during this episode, in which, of course, we're talking about uh, the joy that is Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. <laughs> At the end of the day, um, there was no earthly way of knowing which direction that cake was going (laughs) no but yeah thank you guys for joining us uh it's been a privilege and thank you for helping us get uh willy wonka and the chocolate factory into the movie vault this week Liv, where can we catch yourself what are you up to okay yeah cool if you want to find me i'm livy mac on twitter l-i-v-i-m-a-c-k or cravania on letterbox k-r-a-v-a-n-i-a hit me on letterbox there we go Check it out. Lots of crazy films, as you said. At some point, you'll watch that six-hour sword fighter film and people will get to see what, what you've rated it. <laughs> uh, Kyle, where can we catch yourself? Uh, the best place to find me is on Instagram, and that's kshawn.thomas. And uh, as you said, you've got a bunch of different things on the way, is it? With yeah, the band yeah. And the performance, you said, and the what you've been casting. Yeah, so theatre stuff, metal stuff, weird stuff. I'm a bit of an enigma. <laughs> <laughs> we'll uh, we'll look forward to your uh, recreation of the the boat scene coming up soon. I'm sure. Like we'll we'll give Kyle one day. Like we'll give him pure imagination. You'll have the solo at the end of your party. We'll we'll give you that moment as you were robbed it from your you know from that production you mentioned. 
I can imagine if he redid the boat scene, instead of chopping up chickens, he'd uh, be putting down horses. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just imagining, like, the tra- just the horse collapsing, just a woman like, oh! No, it's just me trying to make your goddamn cake. <laughs> uh, anything lastly from yourself, Greg? I just have one small thing to say. There's no earthly way of knowing which direction we are going. There's no knowing where we're rowing or which way the river's flowing. Is it raining? Is it snowing? Is a hurricane a-blowing? Not a speck of light is showing, so the danger must be growing. Are the fires of hell a-glowing? Is the grizzly reaper mowing? Yes! The danger must be growing, for the rowers keep on rowing, and they're certainly not showing any signs that they are slowing! So yeah, you can uh, catch Craig on Lairbox, I don't know. <laughs> so, you can catch Craig in your local Tesco <laughs> screaming at cakes. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so yeah, uh, you can catch us over on Twitter at WellGoodMovies. You can also catch us on Facebook and Twitter as well, and on our website FreshTakeHub.com/WellGoodMovies. So please do give us a like, rate us, review us. It helps us to get up in those rankings. And yeah, please do let us know what your feelings are on Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. What's your favorite adaptation of it? What are your favorite memories? Were you terrified of the boat scene, or are you more terrified? of uh, some of the food ideas that we've had today including uh raw pork being transported by by drone uh if i see that outside my window i know the apocalypse will have come uh, so yeah thank you guys uh, for joining us once again and we'll catch you in the next one bye-bye